So we've been talking about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and how to develop self-discipline, how to develop the skills, the attitudes, the outlook, the perspective that we're called to have as his disciple. Um, and I told you last week that this week we begin looking at uh, probably our primary um, resource in terms of being able to carry out that kind of life, in terms of being able to, to be that, those kind of people that we desire to be if we're uh, calling ourselves followers of Jesus. And that is the Holy Spirit. And for that, we're going to be looking at uh, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8. Uh, we're going to be using this passage for the next uh, three weeks, looking at the different aspects of how the Holy Spirit ministers to us and how the Holy Spirit can indeed uh, help us to become the disciples that Christ has called us to be. Now in John chapter 16, the Gospel of John, Jesus says something there that uh, is very important to our topic today. He says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And, and that's one of those passages that uh, I kind of read and I look at it and I'm like, really? It's to our advantage if you go away? And because, you know, if, if I'm one of the disciples and I'm sitting there and I'm listening to it, I'm like, no, I want, I want you here with me, Jesus. I want you beside me. I want you talking to me. I want you instructing me. I want your advice on these issues. I want your correction when I step away. I want your encouragement when I do something that's uh, beyond my ability. But his words are uh, essential to, for us to understand how we can truly be his disciples and how we can function in that way because it is the helper, that is the Holy Spirit that he's referring to there, that allows us to function and operate with true power in our faith. It's the Holy, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that, that instructs us and guides us and corrects us and comforts us. But if that's the case, why don't our lives reflect that kind of power? Why don't our lives reflect true, what we would call discipleship, where we're following Jesus? There was a, a Barna survey done a few years ago. And in this survey, they used 20 different lifestyle comparisons. That is, 20 different ways that people uh, address or choose uh, how to make certain decisions. And they, they had to do with um, choosing one direction over another. Choosing one uh, role or one place or one uh, mindset over another. Put it another way, the righteous choice versus the non-righteous choice. Okay, 20 different areas of life where you had to make those sorts of decisions. And what the survey demonstrated is that there was no, absolutely none, measurable difference between the lifestyle of Christians and that of non-Christians. There was nothing to discern those who called themselves Christians from those who the only difference was they went to church on Sundays. But in actual day-to-day -day living, in actual carrying out their faith, in actual investing in their society, in, in actually uh, relating to those in need, in, in living a life of conviction and so forth, there was no measurable difference. 
but we don't really need that study, do we? I mean, I think all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we would have to admit as much. That when I look at my life and how I live it and the choices I make, that quite often there's nothing about the choices I make that would define me as a Christian as opposed to a non-Christian. We struggle to actually demonstrate, to actually live out the presence of Christ in our experience. Sometimes it's because we have what I might call buyer's remorse. Buyer's remorse is that feeling, that that regret, that sorrow, that anger sometimes that we experience when we purchase something that made a lot of promises to us and we're not experiencing those good things. And so we look at that and we're like, why did I even buy this? Why did I even bother? And I think a lot of people have that kind of perception of Christianity. They were told that if they made the decision for Christ, that their life would change. They were told that, that they would experience joy everlasting. They were told that they would, they would be more than overcomers. They were told that they would in, enjoy uh, life even in the midst of difficulties. And that just hasn't been their experience. And so because it hasn't been their experience, they turn away from the faith. They walk away from from church. They walk away from uh, interacting with God, even to some extent. And they say, yeah, I gave Christianity a try. It really didn't work for me. My hope is, as we look at the work of the Holy Spirit this week, that if that's where you're, or over the next several weeks, that if that's where you're at, that you'll discover a pathway forward in which you can indeed experience life the way you were intended to experience it as a believer. That you can indeed experience the power. You can indeed experience the, the, uh, the perspective change. You can, you can experience the reality of Christ living in you in a way that's powerful. In Romans chapter 8, Paul is, in the midst of this letter, he's wrapping up his his arguments on assurance. In, in this portion of the book, he's been trying to communicate to his audience that they can have assurance of their faith, that they can, they can believe and they can understand and they can, they can see Christ at work in their lives. He started by looking at the nature of faith and grace and how those two interact. And then he continued by looking at the failure of the law to bring change because we twisted the law. And then he finished by highlighting how we have died to the law, and in so doing, we have died to sin. And now as he wraps up this discussion of assurance, he comes and he tells us that God has provided the way. And he starts with some of the most encouraging words you'll find anywhere in Scripture. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those are some powerful words if you really take them to heart. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you have a relationship with God through Jesus, 
you've experienced that transforming work, if you've experienced the, the power that's present, there's no condemnation for you. And that should be very empowering. Because in, in every relationship we have, there are those moments where we struggle. Whether it's with a guy and girl relationship or parent-child relationship or co-worker, there's those moments where the other person says something, does something, expresses something that just frustrates us. And you experience that, that separation. You experience that division, even if it's just for a moment. And, and that plays with your mind. I don't want to do that again. Or, or what if I mess up again in a different way? Or, or those sorts of things. And we really struggle to connect. But Paul says that should not be our mentality toward God through Christ. We should understand that we stand transformed. We stand cleansed. We stand changed before God when we stand before Him in Christ. He goes on, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He has granted us freedom. He's granted us a, a, a clean slate. He's granted us, when we come to Christ, when we accept His offer, when we submit ourselves to His plan and to His work, God has created in us a new set of circumstances. A clean slate from which we can work. He's made us, Paul says here, free from sin. But if you hear that simply as a, a, an issue of deliverance from something and not a deliverance to something as well, you miss the point. Because, again, notice how Paul ends his statement. In order that the righteous requirement of law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God did this for a reason. He has redeemed us. He has changed us. He has delivered us from sin and death for a reason. Not just to rescue us, not just to, to, to make our situations better, but what? So that we may walk according to the Spirit. It is God's purpose for us to walk according to the Spirit. It's about where God wants to take us in life. It's about where God wants us to go in life. But somewhere along the line, especially in Baptist life, we've lost focus. We've lost interest. We've lost any kind of real conversation about the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's, a, it's because we're afraid we'll be labeled as charismatics. You know, every time I, I, I feel led to... to preach a message on the Holy Spirit, I think, okay, are they, are they thinking I'm going to start leading them down the path to, to tongues and jumping pews and all the other stuff? Is that what's going to go through their head when I bring this issue up? We've let, some reason, we've let the imbalance that others have expressed in relationship to the Holy Spirit affect our appreciation for the Holy Spirit. And we've diminished Him. He's become the forgotten part 
the Trinity. We acknowledge the Father in his creative activity, in his power, in his majesty. We certainly acknowledge the Son because of what he's done for us in redeeming us and dying on the cross. But when it comes to the Spirit, he's just kind of there as well. So I think it's important that we, we regain some focus, some, some insight, some perspective, because I think when we do that, that we'll begin to live lives that are more in line with what Christ has called us to be, who Christ has called us to be. And so beginning in verse 5 here of chapter 8, Paul goes on to, to outline several markers of those who walk according to the Spirit. Let's look at it. It says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life, give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now there's a lot there. He's packing a lot of theology into those sentences. But let me just see if I, I can break it down just a little bit more to help you kind of understand. What Paul is essentially talking about here is that those who walk in the Spirit experience life. Real life. Okay. You ever had those moments in your life where you're like, man, I felt really alive? Whether it's, you know, some event or experience you're going through or, or some, uh, you're just in that part of your life where things are just going really, really well and man, I've never felt so alive. We say those sorts of sentences. We express those kind of thoughts. And what Paul is getting at here is, is that kind of idea that those who are in the Spirit feel alive. They experience fullness of life. What does it look like? Well, number one, they have, they are surprisingly at peace. What's he say there in, in verse 6? They, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is a life and peace. There's a security to walking in the Spirit. There's a confidence. There's a, there's a sense of, of belonging. I admire people who, who go out and, and who feel led perhaps to a different church or to, to get involved in church for the first time because it can be a very difficult situation. You're stepping into a room where everybody else knows each other. Sometimes they've known each other for decades. Okay? And, and you're, you're looking for some place to belong. And, and as much as they may uh, welcome you and be nice to you and kind to you and, and those sorts of things, man, it can be hard sometimes 
to sit there because you just don't get what they're all getting. You just don't necessarily connect with them. And, and that can be hard. But as you, as you walk and as you continue to, to visit, as you continue to participate, you become a little bit more secure. And, and, and that's kind of the idea that's being expressed here, that it's a security, it, it's a sense of belonging. This is where I'm supposed to be. Not in terms of necessarily a group, but in terms of life. I'm where I'm at because God has put me here. And because God has put me here, I know this is where I'm supposed to be. And I'm good with it. Whatever else is going on, I'm good with it. That's a part of walking in the Spirit. That's part of the life that he's talking about here. He goes on in verses 7 and 8 to say that there are people who are pleasingly obedient. That is, they live lives that are not hostile to God, but they submit to God's law. Not in their own power, not in their own ability, and not because they feel imposed upon or forced, but because the Spirit is living through them. It's a natural response. I've used the, the illustration before, and I hope it registers with you, because I think it, it's, at least for me, it's a very powerful illustration. My relationship with my wife. Okay, When we first started dating, there were all sorts of awkward moments because I was an idiot. Okay, And I would do things and say things and go in certain directions that she was just like, really? But hopefully, I think this is the case at least, now that we've been together for 30 years, those have diminished somewhat. There's still those moments when I leave cupboards open that I should have shut, other things like that, things that I know I should do and I just don't. But but by and large, there's been this decreasing frequency. And that decreasing frequency hasn't happened because she's this overlord who's like, get it right or you're in trouble. The decreasing frequency has happened because I love her. And I want to make her happy. I want to do things to see that smile come on her face. And so I've learned and I've grown and, and, and I've expressed those things. And I think that's kind of what Paul's getting at here in terms of what pleasingly obedient. We don't obey God because we're afraid he's going to smack us. We obey God because we love him. And because His Spirit dwells in us, and that creates a connection there that is life-changing. The third thing is that they're confidently situated. This is very close to, to being at peace, but it's, it's more than that. It's a connection, and it's expressed for us there in, in verse 9. You're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. We know the Spirit dwells in us if we have come to Christ. Distinctively righteous, verse 10. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. Righteousness is that aspect, it's that reality of of walking in relationship with God. Consistently victorious. Now, that's the one that I think we kind of 
say, really? Because the others, we can look at it and we say, yeah, I've experienced peace. And yeah, you know, I, I obey God and I love God. And, and I, I kind of know I'm situated and I'm safe. You know, my mind tells me that. And, and distinctively righteous, okay, you know, there are some aspects about me where I'm revealing who Christ is and what I do. But consistently victorious? I don't know about that one. And yet Paul makes the point here in the strongest possible way by saying what? The spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you as well. Think about that. The power that brought Jesus from the dead. And we're not talking, you know, the, the nine minutes or whatever that we sometimes see, you know, well, they were dead. They were clinically dead for nine minutes or even 30 minutes or whatever, and then they came back. We're talking three days dead. And the power that raised him from the dead is available to you and me as believers. What is there that we couldn't do with that kind of power at our disposal? What is there that we couldn't accomplish with that sort of power? Nothing. Nothing. So why don't we have this? Why don't we live like this? Why do we not experience this kind of power? Why is there no discernible difference between believers and non-believers in the lives they live? Why don't we see the Spirit at work in our lives? Well, I think Paul gives us those answers in this passage as well. Number one, because we compartmentalize our faith. That is, our faith is for this part of our existence and our experience, but not for these parts. We see our relationship with Christ as a component of our life instead of as everything. I just want to add a little bit of Jesus. I want to keep doing the same things I'm doing, but just add a, a touch of Jesus to it. That's not walking in Christ. That's not walking in the Spirit. That's not allowing the Spirit to uh, express Himself in, in terms of who we are. Because in that sort of lifestyle, we're what? We're committed to doing the things that we can do on our own. We feel like we can accomplish things because we never try anything. We never do anything different. We feel security not in the fact that Christ is with us, but we feel security in the fact that we're doing what we've always done, and we're good with it. And in so doing, we insult God. Because he says, the very power that raised Christ from the dead is available to you. And we say, okay, that's nice. I'll just keep doing things under my own power. Things I'm comfortable with. Things I'm safe with. I'm not going to risk it. When the pastor gets up and says, we need to share our faith. I don't know if I can do that. I get kind of tongue-tied or, or 
I don't know enough of the scriptures or I, you know, I, I, people have, have shot me down before or whatever it is, whatever excuse it is that we make for not sharing our faith. But the very power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that's available for us to share our faith. But because we can't do it on our own power, we're not interested in it. We compartmentalize our life to where the Spirit can have us on Sunday morning when we sing our God's praises or when we, even when we open our, our Bibles because we know the Spirit's got to be there for us to understand Scripture. The Spirit can have those moments, but the day-to-day -day experiences, walking with conviction, standing for what's right, I don't want the Spirit to be a part of that because then I might look like a radical. We're afraid to actually step out. It's the second reason. We're afraid because we're afraid God might let us down. Or we're afraid that that God won't see us through. And yet, Paul says there in verse 12, you're a debtor. You owe a debt. I don't know many creditors who just let people slide on their debts. But I also don't know many creditors who won't do what they can to make sure that person's able to pay that debt. And that's the idea here. Paul says, yeah, we're a debtor to Christ. We're a debtor to God for what He's done, but He's going to come alongside to help us walk in a way that pays that debt. I think a third reason is we don't see it as important. It's not a priority to us. I have the Son, I'm good. But Paul says we need to live according to the Spirit to reflect that we have the Son. Jesus said in Matthew 5.16, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We need to be living a life that reveals who God is and not worried about the outcome of whether they accept us or they don't or whether they accept Christ or don't. We've all heard the saying, I think, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them. And I've heard that a lot of times in terms of, of people, in terms of their sharing their faith. Well, I, I can't make people drink. You're right, you can't. You can't make people accept Christ. But someone once said, and I think it's true, our job is not to make the person drink. Our job is to help make them thirsty. It's to help them to see the value of what it is that we have. I want that. You ever been there real thirsty and someone walks by with a cold beverage and you're like, I really like that. That's the way our faith should be, that when we walk by and people see the joy and people see the power, people see the expressions and people see what we're, how we're dealing with life, that they want that. Next, I don't think we expect a difference. 
You don't expect a difference. A lot of us who grew up in a church, sadly, we grew up seeing this, that there's no difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. And so we bought into the story over the years. There really doesn't need to be a difference. That's what I've seen my whole life in church. That's what I've seen in terms of the believers that are around me. That's what I've seen in terms of people who are Christians for, for years, and they get up and they fight and they bicker and they argue and they, they don't have love in their hearts and they, they're not sharing their faith and they're not actively involved. So if I don't haven't seen it my entire life in church members, then why should I expect it in my life either? And so we settle. I like how Francis Chan puts this. He says, if I were to tell you that God came to live in me and to empower me to play basketball, you would expect my basketball playing skills to be pretty special. If I said to you, God has made me a great basketball player, you would expect me to be an amazing basketball player, wouldn't you? that kind of miraculous intervention, and yet we say that God dwells in us to empower us to live different lives, and we don't expect a difference there. We bought into the mediocrity. We bought into the apathy. We bought into the, let's just get along. Let's just go along type of mentality. So how is God ever going to express himself when we don't even expect him to? And then when we do see God start to move, we panic. I don't know how many times I've been in churches and, and works where God has began to move. And people are coming to Christ and, and people are, are, are starting to, to come to church and Bible studies and these sorts of things. And people are starting to respond. And the other people in the church, instead of getting excited, they panic. What are we going to do with all these people? How are we going to treat with them? How are we going to respond to them? One of the first churches I worked in when I was in college, we started a children's ministry, and children started coming. Boom. They were, they were everywhere. And we had the pastor and deacons come to us college students and say, you need to stop this. We can't handle all these kids. And I'm like, what? This is why we're here. This is why we're here. And while we may never express those thoughts just that way, I think a lot of us get scared when the Spirit really starts to work and change starts to happen. Because suddenly, I'm not in charge anymore. God's in charge, and that's a scary place to be sometimes. And so we shut it down when it starts to happen. Last. Sometimes we may not see the Spirit working because we're not believers. We're really not people who have given their lives to Christ. Sometime back, the Associated Press carried a dispatch from Glasgow, Kentucky. Leslie Puckett, after struggling to start his car, finally lifted the hood and discovered that someone had stolen his And I think sometimes that's where we're at. that's where people are at. They've struggled for years to start their motor, so to speak. 
But the fact is they never gave their life to Christ in the first place. There's no motor there to start. And I really don't want to take a passage that, that's intended or designed to offer assurance to use it to create doubt. That's not my purpose here. I'm not trying to create doubt in people's lives. All I'm asking you is simply, one more time, listen to the Spirit. Is the Spirit convicting you, leading you, telling you, communicating to you, relating to you that you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ? That while you may have prayed a prayer once upon a time or or said some words that somebody told you to say once upon a time, you've never really entered into a relationship with God through Jesus. You've never really connected. You thought you were buying fire insurance when Christ was telling you to buy whole life policy. Paul says here, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So if the Spirit's never been at work in your life, perhaps you don't. I can't judge that. I can't see that. I can't know that. But you, the Spirit, can know that. But those of you who have made that decision, those of you who have given your life to Christ, Let me ask you kind of where we started. Are you even giving any attention to the work of the Holy Spirit? When I was in college, I took a class on world religions. We had a guest speaker who came in, and he did something I'd never seen before. As he broke down the Christian denominations, he wrote, Father, Son, Holy Spirit up on the board. And he said, all of the Christian denominations can be placed somewhere on the spectrum over concerning which person of the Trinity they focus on. Put up there the Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, some of your high church Protestants under the Father. That's where their emphasis is, the Father and His holiness and His glory. And then the evangelicals, you know, and Baptists and so forth, they were under the Son. That's where the focus is, always on the Son. And then Charismatics, they were under the Spirit. And I never really thought about that. I think there's some accuracy to it, but what I think is also a part of that is the fact that sometimes we so focus on the Son, we forget that He told us Himself that for our walk and for our ministry and for our growth and for our power, it's important that the Spirit comes, that the Spirit be a part of us. And we need to acknowledge that and realize that. As believers, we need to be praying Not just to the Father, just to the Son, but through the Spirit as well. And I think as we reorient our focus, it's not that He suddenly does stuff that He wasn't doing before, but we see it at work more, and we value it more, and we begin to live life according to it more. The Spirit has been given to us to empower us. Are we living in that power? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your 
grace and goodness. Thank you for your son, all that he's done so that we might have life. And I thank you for the spirit. God, I pray that you would help us here this morning to acknowledge our relationship with you and how it works or how it doesn't work. God, I pray that if there's anyone here who's never experienced the salvation you offer, never experienced the deliverance, the joy, the peace that you are trying to get them to experience, that you're, that you're trying to help them to see and understand, God, that you'd lay that on their heart this morning that they would respond in faith. God, I also pray for my brothers and sisters who've made that commitment, but who are not living lives of power, who are not living in an experience, in, a, in an outlook, in a perspective that reveals a difference. Help us, Lord, to see how you have empowered us through your Spirit to do just that. Help us to, to make that a priority, to see it as important, and help us to, to walk with an expectation of what you can do in a life that's totally sold out to you. God, I pray that the decisions that need to be made here this morning would be made, whether it's uniting with our church, surrendering to your call to ministry, surrendering to, to walk a, with a, a renewed emphasis and commitment to who you called us to be, or most importantly, Lord, surrendering our lives to you so that we might experience salvation. Use this time for your glory, for your kingdom. In Christ's name I pray.